in John chapter 17 this morning. You're looking especially at verses 20 down to the end of the chapter to verse 26. We have taken what uh, theologians have called the high priestly prayer of Jesus or the farewell discourse of Jesus. And we have divided it into three sections because this prayer naturally divides into three sections. The first division we saw three weeks ago is verses 1 through 5, where Jesus is praying for himself and for a manifestation of the glory that he had with the Father before the world was and that was due to him because of his mediatorial work on the cross. And then we have looked most recently at verses 6 through 19, that is Jesus' prayer for his apostles, the 11 who had remained with him for the mission that he was about to send them on. He had prayed for their safekeeping for their sanctification, for their separation from the world. And now he turns and is going to pray for you in a very focused way. If you were a believer, Jesus is praying for those, you'll notice there in verse 20, who will believe in me through their word. And so we're looking this morning at John 17, verses 20 down to 26, and I know that you'll find it helpful to be reading along with me. Now the Lord Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them. You and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, the long history of the Christian church, and this is no surprise to anyone who even has a cursory understanding of the history of the Christian church, is that of a tension between uh, looking for a church that is committed to truth or a church that is committed to unity. Um, it was probably really in the 19th century that this, this um, call for unity at all expenses began to burgeon, especially in the end of the 19th century, um, what, we, what we now call the ecumenical movement, where there is call for denominational unity at all cost. Um, that is not what Jesus has in mind here in this chapter. And yet, on the other side, there have been divisions and schisms, and there have been needless fights. And, and those who so emphasize truth generally have done so to the diminishment of Jesus' call for unity with other believers. Um, there is, for some reason, this great tension between a church that is committed to truth and a church that is committed to unity. Now, 
Jesus here is going to pray for those who are going to believe in him. And very interesting, the very last thing that the Lord is going to pray for is that believers would be united in him as he is united in his Father. What is in the heart of Jesus as he looks through the centuries and millennia that lay in front of him and the fruit of his work that he is going to accomplish at the cross is the Savior is going to ask his Father that the Father would unite believers in the truth and in his love. Um, C.S. Lewis has a very interesting introduction to Athanasius, um, Athanasius's book on the Incarnation, in which Lewis is actually talking about the great literary works in church history and how we should love to read the old theological works, that too many people like to read the new theological works. And in that introduction, as Lewis is talking about the value of the old theological works, and he mentions Obviously, Athanasius here on the Incarnation, and he will mention John Bunyan, and no doubt he's thinking about the Pilgrim's Progress and Holy War, and he's thinking about the great theological works that believers have written in church history. Listen to this. Lewis says this in the middle of that introduction. He says, we are all rightly distressed and ashamed at the divisions in Christendom. But those who have always lived within the Christian fold may be too easily dispirited by them. They are bad, but such people do not know what it looks like from without. Seen from there, what is left intact, despite all the divisions, still appears as it truly is an immensely formidable unity. Now, what is Lewis saying there? He's saying if you look out at church history— And while there are divisions and schisms and while there are teachings, false teachings and harmful movements, but when you look at the unity, it's an answer to the prayer of Jesus. Generation after generation after generation, denomination to denomination, there is a general unity of believers in those precious truths that are rooted in Jesus Christ whether it is Augustine or Athanasius or John Bunyan or C.S. Lewis or whoever it is that is writing those great truths. Now, I want us to consider as we look this morning in a focused way on these few short verses, three things. The unity that Jesus is praying for is first a unity in the truth of who he is. It is secondly a unity in his glory, and it is in the third place a unity in his love. It is unity in his truth, unity in his glory, and it is unity in his love. Notice there, as Jesus begins to pray in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, remember, I said in the second section here, Jesus has been praying for the eleven. He knows the mission he's going to send them on. He's going to send them out into the world to proclaim the gospel. He knows the hostility of the world. He knows the challenges that they're going to face. He knows that they're already downcast. Remember back at the beginning of the upper room, he said, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says then toward the end of the upper room discourse, do not let your heart be troubled. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He knows what's in their heart. He knows that they're going to be distressed. He knows that they're going to be fearful. 
And so he is praying that the Father strengthens them for that ministry in a very special and focused way. But then notice this. Now, in verse 20, there are two groups in mind. You have to notice, look very carefully. He now prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those. There are these and there are those. That these are the apostles, that those are you if you're a believer. Those who are going to believe in me. And then notice what he says. I pray for those who will believe in me through their word. He's talking about the apostles. Those who will believe in me will believe in me because of the truth that is proclaimed by these I've just prayed for and sent out into the world. You see, before he even prays for unity, he prays for those who are going to embrace the truth about him. When Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, and he talks about the foundation of the new covenant church, he talks about the apostles and the prophets being the foundation, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. You see, what is, what is the foundation of the Christian faith? It is, it is the apostolic doctrine as resting on and held together by the truth of Jesus, the chief cornerstone. So before Jesus ever prays for unity, he prays for those who will receive the truth about him and be united in that sense to those who have gone before and to those who come after. That's why C.S. Lewis could say that, that there has always been a true unity because it's a unity that is rooted in truth. Listen to this. J.C. Ryle has this great meditation because Ryle essentially is saying too many people are looking for union without unity or uniformity. What Jesus is going to pray for is unity in the truth about him, not union at all cost, not even uniformity. You see, the unity that we're looking for is not, it, and let me just tell you this right now, I'm very Presbyterian. Presbyterianism will never produce the unity that Jesus is praying for. If you are just really, there's only like one person near obsessed with Presbyterianism, but I'm speaking to that person, I guess. If you think the unity Jesus is going to bring about is going to come through polity and procedure, you're wrong. It will not. Nor will it come through Anglicanism, nor will it come through independency. It will not come through whatever external form of church government. Listen to what Ryle says. The unity which our Lord prays for is not unity of forms, discipline, government, or the like, but unity of heart and will and doctrine and practice. Those who make uniformity the cheap subject of this part of Christ's prayer entirely miss the mark. There may be uniformity without unity, as in many visible churches on earth now. There may be unity without uniformity, as between godly Episcopalians and godly Presbyterians. Uniformity, no doubt, may be a great help to unity, but it is not unity itself. Where does unity come from? Jesus says that they may believe in me through their word. Now notice, he says in verse 21 now that they may all be one. Um, Now, I have to say this this morning, that doesn't mean 
if such and such a believer doesn't believe every single thing you believe on the sacraments, on whatever, that there's no unity. There is an essential message, and that is about the divine Son who was crucified and risen for sinners, and that he made a full atonement for his people, that he satisfied divine justice, that he has forgiven all the sins of his people by his blood, and that we are saved by trusting in him alone for salvation. That, that is the central doctrinal truth that unites believers. Um, as much as we love Reformed theology, and we should, it is not what unites all true believers. Christ and what he's done in the work of redemption to bring us to God is what unites all true believers. Um, Notice that Jesus really roots the union of believers in the truth about him in the relationship he has with his Father. Notice verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. So, so Jesus is saying, the union that I want my people to have, the harmony, the fellowship, the like-mindedness, um, the co-belligerency that I want my people to have as my people is rooted in the inseparable union that I have with my Father. Isn't that marvelous? That, that the union the world is looking for through organizations and movements and all kinds of counterfeits can only be found in the union that Jesus has with the Father from all eternity to all eternity and, and the Savior brings his people into that union and that fellowship as they receive the truth and believe in him. Uh, C.S. Lewis has another lecture that he gave in 1944 at King's College in London. It's called The Inner Ring, and I'm sure I've mentioned it before. In that, in that work, Lewis talks about how in society, everybody's trying to get into the inner circle, the inner ring, but once you get into one that you think is, there's another one and another one and another one, and there's no ultimate inner circle. Actually, there is. There is the inner ring of the, the relationship between the Father and the Son, and the Son brings his people into that. If you've come to Christ, you've been brought into that. The union that the Son has with the Father, the indwelling of the Father and the Son, now the Son indwelling in his people, that's, that's the union. That's, that's where the unity comes from. You know, this is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 2, if there's any comfort of love, any fellowship in the Spirit, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of the same mind. If you have this union with Jesus that Jesus has with his Father, how can we not have union with one another in the truth about him? Now, notice, why is it so important that we understand, first of all, that this unity is in the truth about Christ? Notice, there is an evangelistic purpose here. And you might miss this if you read by too hastily. Remember all the way back in chapter 13 in the upper room when he's washing the disciples' feet at the beginning of this section, Jesus says... A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. 
by the love that you have for one another. So, so the world is watching, and when the world sees biting and devouring, and they see Christians vying to get their own way in churches, and they, they see angry belligerency in the public square, our witness is being lost. Notice that Jesus' great burden is that they may be one, that we may be one. Notice this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the first time in this prayer that Jesus has cared about the world. Remember earlier he said, I pray for these, I do not pray for the world. Just before this. Now he says, I'm praying for those who are going to believe in me through the apostolic word, that they may be one, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Lewis will say in that introduction to On the Incarnation, he will say, listen, before I was a believer, I was watching the church and professing Christians. And you better believe the world is watching. As much as the world may hate the church, it's watching. Um, It's looking for reasons um, to condemn. And Jesus here is saying, I have given you the precious gift of unity and the truth about me as a collective evangelistic tool to the world so that others will come, will see, and will believe. You know, chances are good that, that most of you did not come to know Christ under a single sermon, but it was someone who poured into your life who was a believer. You saw something in them. You saw the way they cared about other believers. You saw the whole lifestyle. And, and I know this was true for me. I wanted what they had because I didn't have it. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a union. I'm praying for a union in truth about me that the world may believe that you have sent me. Um, J.C. Ryle, one more quote here, says, It is well to remember that the church, whose unity the Lord desires and prays for, is not any particular visible church, but the church which is his body, the church of the elect, the church which is made up of true believers and saints. And so, Remember that as you hear the Savior praying this morning. The first thing is for unity in the truth about him. Now, secondly, he prays for unity in his glory. And this is a difficult verse, verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now, there are are about seven plausible explanations about what does Jesus mean, the glory that you've given me, I've given them. Um, And I'm not going to waste your time with all of them. I think the most likely is that Jesus is here referring to the Holy Spirit, because Peter calls Spirit the Spirit of glory. And it's very interesting. I don't know if you remember this. Throughout the Upper Room Discourse from chapter 14 to 16, Jesus gives the greatest exposition of the Holy Spirit. He's going to come. He's going to lead you into all truth. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He spoke more about the Holy Spirit there than anywhere else. And yet when he prays this prayer, he never once mentions the Holy Spirit. That ought to strike us as strange. Why doesn't he? I don't think he is diminishing the work of the Spirit. I actually think, and there have been many theologians who have agreed with this, that 
He is mentioning the Spirit in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, because the Spirit is the one who confers the glory on his people. Now, what is that glory that the Spirit confers? He, he, he conforms God's people into the likeness of Christ, right? Just as Adam would have had a glory about him as made in the image of God, so Christ is renewing his image in his people, and he's doing that by the Holy Spirit. And so notice this. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, I think the Apostle Paul is picking up on this in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says that we are to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're to endeavor to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That means if I have the Holy Spirit, if you have the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit is transforming me into the likeness of Christ, if he is transforming you into the likeness of Christ, if he is producing that sweet fruit in your life, if he is making us to know more of the love and joy and peace of Christ in our lives, then then there is a oneness about us that can only be experienced because of the glory that the Spirit gives to his people. That's where that oneness comes. It can't be manufactured. Only those who are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit can know that oneness with other believers. You know, I have been in many fellowships in my life, and I have had moments of fellowship with other believers where I walked away and thought, that was incredible. And I have had moments of tension with people who profess to be in Christ but don't display the fruit of the Spirit. And I've walked away and I've thought, wow, that was awful. You see, that's how it works functionally and practically. If we have the Holy Spirit, we should be walking away from our fellowship thinking that was sweet. Um, that unity can't be manufactured. It can't be, um, it can't be counterfeited. We can play a part for so long, but unless we have the Spirit of Christ indwelling us and Him imparting that glory, we can't know that unity. Um, I want us to, in the third place, and most significantly, I want us to consider unity in the love of Christ. We've seen unity in the truth of Christ, unity in the glory of Christ. Now I want us to consider unity in the love of Christ. What's so interesting about this prayer? Because keep in mind, in, in less than an hour... Jesus is going to be on his face in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be agonizing, sweating great drops of blood. He's going to be praying to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. But when he prays this prayer just an hour before that, he doesn't say to his Father, if it be your will, do these things for your people. He prays on the basis of his own divine will for us, on the basis of the relationship he has with his Father, and on the basis of that eternal love that the Father had for him and that the Father has for us. So that's what, what is most significant is that Jesus is going to pray things that the Father is going to produce in his people. And the very last thing, don't miss this, 
the very last thing Jesus prays, and in one sense we can say teaches his disciples before he goes to the cross, is the significance of them knowing the love that the Father has for them and that it's the exact same love that the Father has for the Son. Notice um, Jesus will say in verse uh, 23, the second half, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. has loved them even as you have loved me. Notice the end of the section, the very last word Jesus says. He prays that the Father would make, um, and he would make known to us the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, I don't know about you, but the hardest thing in the Christian life for me is to actually believe that God loves me. Because I know all of my sin, all of my failings, and it is, and it, and it ought to be striking to us. When we say, you know, God loves sinners, that, that ought to be an astonishing thought. But, but beyond that, it's not just that he loves us. It's not that he just puts up with us. We are trophies of grace that he chose in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the way he can love us, the only way he can love you, is in his son. And if you are united to his son, and if he has chosen you in the son, remember Jesus is going to say, these that you gave me, these that you gave me, that the father has given us, to the Son, that the only way he can love us is with the same love that he has for his infinitely perfect Son. I want you to think about that. When I ask the question, does God really love me? The answer ought to be he loves me as much as he loves his own Son because he loves me in the Son. And that is water on the soul. Because it not only explains how he can love us, it explains the extent of that love to us. He doesn't just love us in some small degree. He doesn't love us reluctantly. He loves us in the same way that he loves his son. That's remarkable. Charles Spurgeon is most renowned for meditating on the love that the Father has for believers being the same as the love that he has for the son. And he says this in one sermon. Listen to this. He says, when there was a choice between Christ and his people, which should die of the two, when there was a choice between God choosing between Christ or you, who has to die and suffer the punishment and the judgment? Spurgeon says, the father freely delivered up his own son that we might live through him. Oh, what a meeting there must have been of the seas of love that day, when God's great love came to us rolling in like a glorious springtide, and his love to his son came rolling in at the same time, if they had met and come into collision, we cannot imagine the result, but they both took the rolling together in one mighty torrent. What a stream there was. The Lord Jesus sank that we might swim. He sank that we might rise. Now we are born onward forever by the mighty sweep of infinite love into an everlasting blessedness, which tongues and lips can never fully set forth. He's saying 
God loved his son, God loved you, but because you deserved wrath and the son did not, when the father considered both, he said, I will give my son for them. And where does that love meet? It meets on the cross where he sinks under the wrath of God for our sin. So how do I know that the father loves me? I look at the cross. If I look at myself, I'll never know that. Because I'm self-righteous, I'm full of pride, I'm full of judgmentalism and rebellion. I love this dark world too much. I love myself too much. Um, But when I look at the cross and I see the Savior to whom I'm united, falling under the wrath of God for me, I can know in my heart the Father loves me. He doesn't just love me. He loves me in the same way that he loved his son. In fact, Spurgeon will in another sermon say, when I look at the cross, I almost wonder, does he love me more than he loves his son? Um, That ought to be astonishing to us. That God's love for us is so great, and, and Jesus wants us to be united in that love. I grew up in a very, very Reformed home and um, Reformed churches my whole life. And my dad used to say to me, you know, Nick, the Reformed church is so good at doctrine and so bad at love. I'm 44 now, and I'm, every day I'm seeing that more and more. So good at speaking truth, taking on the world, fighting with people, arguing about doctrine. So bad at love. How can that be if we're looking to Christ And we are hearing him pray for us. You know, the most loving man I've ever met was a guy named John Skilton. He was a professor at Westminster Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, I think 43 years. And uh, if you go to Philadelphia and talk to people that knew Dr. Skilton, they'll say he was the most loving man I've ever met. He had the whole New Testament memorized in Greek. He was a far better theologian than you'll ever be, any of you. Um wrote a doctoral dissertation on uh, English translations of the Bible from 1880 to 1910. He left it on a bus in Philadelphia, lost it, and reconstructed it from memory. That's how smart he was. But John Skilton opened his home in the Vietnamese section of Philadelphia when he retired in 1965, and he would bring homeless people and missionaries in. John would sleep on the floor and give other people his bed. That's why they called him the most loving man I've ever met. Um, When I was 17, I had really started rebelling and um, was in a lot of darkness. And uh, Dr. Skelton was dying. He was in the shore of New Jersey, and my dad was on the phone with him, and he put him on the phone with me. And I'll never forget, John said, Nick, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. And I couldn't even talk to him. Now, how much more significant should it be that Jesus is praying for us? How much more impactful that the Savior prayed for you and for me? How much more efficacious we should be confident? So when Jesus says to us, I want you to be one, I'm praying, my Father, that you be one in the truth about me, in the glory you have with me, in the love that God has for you, how powerful that should be. Look, when people look at Church Creek, I'm going to leave you with this. They should not think, you know, Church Creek is distinguished from every other church because they care more about this or this or this. 
they should look on and say, that's a congregation that is united in Christ, the truth about him, in the glory he gives them, in the love that the Father has for them. Those things should be evident. No, I want that for our congregation. I hope that you do, and I want it for myself. I want that to start with me, and I hope that you'll want it to start with you. The Lord Jesus wants you to look at everything he's praying here, to be comforted by it, to be motivated by it, and to continue to pursue it in your life because he has made us one even as he is one with his Father. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge this morning that we have not loved this oneness as we ought. We have not cherished this prayer, Lord Jesus, that the great burden of your heart would be that we would be one out of every tongue, tribe, nation, and language, that everyone who has received that apostolic word and who is a recipient of your glory and who is the object of the Father's love would be one. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would so unite the believers of this congregation together in that oneness that we have in union with you, that others would see it, that it would be evident that we would experience it and be able to rejoice in it. And so, Lord, would you give us grace to pursue these things for which you've prayed. We thank you and praise you that we have such a Savior. We pray that you would make us to know more of that great love, Heavenly Father, that you have for us, even that love that you had for your Son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.